you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading to verse 23. We'll go to verse 26. Tonight we'll be looking all the way through to verse 36. But verse 23 of John chapter 12. But Jesus, but Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most surely I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my Father will honor. And so, Father, as people who desire, Lord, to be honorable in your sight, I pray that we would be students of your word, but also people of service that, Lord, we would receive, but we would also give of ourselves. And so, Father, once again, we pray that you would bless us with understanding in your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You go ahead and be seated. Now, last week, we saw the attitude of the Pharisees when they saw Jesus, and, and they were of that mindset as he was making this triumphal entry. Now, the, the whole world has gone after him. I mean, they're, they're concerned because they're planning on killing him. We had seen that earlier in, in chapter 11, verse 53. And, and as they're making this plan, it's getting harder and harder because he's becoming more and more public. We saw this true in verses 20 through 22. Well, there's so many people that want to see him, and now we've even got these Greeks who, who've asked to see him. Well, it's four days before the Passover at this point. It's four days before our Lord's crucifixion. All Jewish males, 20 years and older, are required to present themselves in Jerusalem. As we saw, there's probably up to close to 2 million people in that city at this time. And then last week we saw a cross-section of those present and what they wanted to see in Jesus. We saw in verses 12 through 13, there was the common Jew they were looking for Messiah, but according to their terms. They had the palm branches, they were crying out, Hosanna, restore now. But that's exactly what they were looking for. They weren't so much looking for a Savior, they were looking for a restorer. In verse 16, you've got Jesus' disciples, clueless in Jerusalem. They don't even know what's going on. They're, they're pretty confused. It says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. So they're unsure of all that's happening. Verse 17, you've got the witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection, and they see Jesus as someone who people need to be brought to or at least spoken of. In verse 19, the Pharisees saw Jesus, but they were trying to make him go away so that they would see him no more. And then again, in verses 20 through 22, we have these Greeks, these Gentiles, who, well, it's a picture of those who wish to see Jesus who wish to see Jesus, and you've got a little bit of a picture, as we saw last week, in verses 20 through 22 of the book of Acts. You have the apostles that are represented in Philip and Andrew, bringing people to Jesus, bringing these Gentile people who so desire to understand who this man is. These Greeks were more than likely there for the Passover feast as well. They were probably what is called God-fearers, people who believed in God. They were kept on the peripheral by the Jewish religious establishment, but they so desired, they so desired to have that deeper relationship with Christ. We share our faith. We share our faith. We're rejected for it a lot. There's those people who maybe will make a 
was seemingly a decision for Christ, but not really sure. But then there's those people who want to see Jesus. They, they want to know. And it's just such a blessing to have that opportunity to lead people to Christ that truly desire to be led to Christ. Now what we have here in the verses that I just read at the beginning of our study, verses 23 through 26, it's Jesus' threefold answer to those who wish to see him, all based upon the proper perspective of who he is. Again, previously, verses 12 through to verse 22, there's a lot of wrong perspectives, a lot of wrong ideas in who Christ is. Here's how Christ is going to reveal himself. And so the first answer to those who want to see Jesus, you must see him as liberator. Liberator, next to that you could write Savior, but again in verses 23 and 24, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most surely I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. So the perspective from which we should view him as liberator is based upon his death. Because we know that salvation is based upon the cross. Now, those who were crucified or even those who have died before, there was a shame to that. Why a shame? Because we know that the only reason that death has entered in is because of sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, the last part, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so what's going to be, what's going to seem to be a curse, actuality and actuality is going to work out to be the glory of God. The word that Jesus uses to describe his death is not a shame, but it is a glorifying. And so you want to see Jesus? You're truly never going to see Jesus, not properly until you come to an understanding of his death upon the cross. So as Philip and Andrew told Jesus that the Greeks wanted to see him, Jesus' answer is, they will. The only way mankind can truly perceive me, and it's going to be upon the cross. Every main message that was given in the book of Acts spoke of the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because again, that's what makes all the difference. See, we didn't need somebody to restore us. We, we need somebody to save us. We need somebody to enter into the condition of mankind in such a way that alters the course of humanity because the course of humanity, apart from Christ, it's headed to condemnation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, it says, "...having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself..." One new man from the two. Now, the two spoken of here is both Jew and Greeks or Jew and Gentile. He says, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So these are God-fears. They've heard of God. I don't know to what degree. We're just simply not told. But now they hear of this new sensation, Jesus Christ, and they want to see him, probably having an improper perspective as well, but at least a curiosity to see more. There's opportunity in that. There's always opportunity when anybody has that desire, and that's what our job is to do, is to display Jesus Christ in him crucified. We see the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 enters into Athens. It's overtaken by idols, and 
those who were in the courtyard, in the, in the marketplace, took him to the Areopagus to examine the things that he was preaching because they're looking for some kind of philosophy that's going to make sense of all this life. And so Paul enters in and he's ministering to them and he's preaching. He's using their philosophers and, and there are some people that are led to the Lord. But then we get a little bit of a picture as he left there. He went to Corinth. Now in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, Remember when I came in, in chapter 2? I, I, I did not come to you in, in, in eloquence of speech. I did not come to you in philosophies of man, because he understood the dead end that existed there. When I came to you, I came to you preaching nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's how mankind needs to perceive Jesus Christ. And so again, we get a little bit of a snapshot in verses 20 through 22, of the book of Acts, of what is going to happen in the future with the apostles, those who were with this message, and those people, those people who are looking for some sort of meaning of life. We live in a society today that's completely upside down. Elections didn't really settle anything down, looking at society as a whole. And, and you see the uproar that has come because of this, well, the thing about it is, in four, four more years from now, it's probably going to be everybody, because we so look at our elected officials to make everything better. We so look at our elected officials to cause this place to be heaven upon earth. But how many people have we elected into office where things really did get better? And if they did, what permanence was there to that? Well, we know, again, we've read to the end of the book, things aren't going to get better Matter of fact, one day Jesus Christ is going to come back for his church. And then there's going to be tribulation that there never was. But it's all those who have come to see Jesus Christ and have seen Jesus Christ in him crucified and have submitted himself to him based upon the blood of the cross that will have the eternal life. Not heaven here on earth, but a total eternal existence with our Savior. Secondly, to truly see Jesus, you must see him first as liberator, but also as your leader. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now again, Jesus set an example just in the previous verse. Most surely I say to you, unless one grain of wheat, a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, we don't have a whole lot of wheat around here. I'll use a different example. My wife last night told me that pomegranates are good for you. And so she had bought a whole case of pomegranates. Um, I'm not real fond of pomegranates, but when you open up, what do you see? It's, it's kind of an amazing sight. You've got that deep blood red against that white background. And you see just all of those seeds. Now, if you would take one of those seeds out and you would plant that seed, it would produce a pomegranate tree that would produce many pomegranates and in turn many seeds. And that's the idea of what he's saying. Christ must die, but even as he died for the purpose of so many more, we die for the purpose of others as well. And again, you need to see the opportunity and the potential that each life has. Look at the opportunities that you have. Now, we'll elect somebody in the White House and we'll expect them to change and alter lives. You have that power. You have that opportunity with every opportunity that God gives you. Again, as we share God's word, the opportunities are, are, are endless. They're, they're, they're beyond us. I have the opportunity because I die to my flesh, but live to Christ, others may do the same. Just from one seed who's died to itself, many others. Christ is the leader. He has set the example. 
the perspective from which we should view his leadership is through sacrifice. Now again, the devil tried to pervert that. Remember in the temptations of Christ? If you bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And let's say that he was able to do that. That, well, why would Christ do that? Well, the temptation was in, if you bow down before me, you don't have to go upon that cross. And we'll see today that, well, the cross, although it was the, it's described in Hebrews as the joy that was set before him, it was also something that troubled his heart. And you can imagine that if you were, if I told you we were, we were having a crucifixion at Calvary Chapel, Ontario tomorrow, and we've chosen you, you would have a sleepless night tonight. You'd be very concerned. Your heart would be troubled. You would be thinking, man, it's going to hurt when they drive those nails into my hands. It's going to hurt when, you know, just through the whole thing. But that wasn't really what Christ was thinking. He's thinking of sin being placed upon him. And, and think of that, the magnitude of that. You have God, perfectly pure, completely holy. He's going to the cross. Now, the things that happened to him physically, they did happen to him. He's fully human. Their pain was there. It was real, but that's an outward expression of spiritually what is occurring in Christ as the sins of the world are being placed upon him. When he's troubled, he's troubled. When he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood because God, for the very first time, and again, think of it in these terms, the first time in all eternity past, that means forever in the past, for the first time at that point in history, he's experiencing the effects of sin. We'll look at that in a little bit, but we need to understand the magnitude of the sacrifice. So when the devil is tempting him, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, the problem with that was, and Jesus obviously knew this, that was temporary. If the devil could, in fact, give him authority over the kingdoms of the earth, that was just going to be something that is temporary. It's going to be of this world. But unfortunately, what is, even in the church, we spend a lot of our time doing, we spend a lot of our time building a kingdom here on this earth rather than building God's kingdom. And again, we need to have that, that proper perspective. I need to have that balance. i got to earn a living. There's no doubt about that. I need to be wise, and I need to save, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm not putting people down for that. People who are well-off and successful, I'm not putting them down. I'm just asking, where is our priority? And we see where Christ's priority was. It was in sacrifice that he was going to make for the reason and the purposes of all of humanity. He wasn't coming here to establish a kingdom, not like on the devil's terms. He was there to once again establish the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, he left his exalted. Now, Jesus leaves a real exalted position. We leave a perceived exalted position. When we humble ourselves, we are in actuality leaving an exalted position. And a lot of it, well, it's how we've exalted ourselves. Or maybe even somebody else has exalted us, but in the sight of God, in actuality, it's nothing. And so you're already looked at in a, in a humble manner, if you will, as far as what you're able to do. And God is wanting you to get it in order for you to humble yourself in the sight of God. And it's then that when you have that humble spirit before a holy God, that you're prepared to be used by Him. And so God became a bondservant so that we would have eternal life in him. And so it's perfectly spelled out. We're not going to get into a whole study, but perfectly spelled out in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And the way Paul starts out this section of Scripture, he says, 
let this mind be in you. Have this mindset in your Christian life. He says, it was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man. Now, how much more so should I have that mindset? He was God, and he did that. How much more so, me just being a man, should I follow in that example? And so Jesus set the example. He's the leader in these things. And so as Jesus, him being the author and finisher of our faith, set the example in the manner that he did, we must follow. See, if the ultimate priority of your time here on earth is your life, keep in mind, there's going to come a day you're going to lose it. And really, that's twofold. One day, you're going to die. And so whatever it is, remember the rich fool in, in Luke? The one day, regardless of everything you've accumulated, regardless of everything that you have, you're still going to die. The day of your death is coming down the road. We just had Duke's funeral last Saturday. It was a Saturday before. He went to bed. He wasn't feeling well. But he never. Well, he woke up in the presence of Jesus. The beauty of Duke is, and the testimonies that we heard last Saturday, he didn't build his kingdom here on earth. He, he, he built it in heaven. He built it forward in, in heaven. And you, you need to see what you need to see. It, it, it's sorrow. There's no doubt about that. But you need to see the value in what this imperfect man did. He, he built his kingdom in the proper place. And it, it's, it's essential because one day, if you build the kingdom here on earth, one day you're going to die and you're going to lose it, but it's going to get a lot worse than that because there's death, the passing from here into the next life, but there's also eternal death as well. And so if your priority is your life, the problem is you're going to die and you're going to die beyond your imagination. Also, if the ultimate priority of your time here on earth is your death, and what I mean by that is the dying to yourself, then you will find eternal life. Again, Jesus is the example. He's fully God, but he makes himself of no reputation. What that means is he took, apart, he took and set apart some of his divine attributes. We know that Jesus, when he was here, he was not omnipresent because he was not everywhere at the same time. He set that aside. He's God. God's omnipresent. He wasn't all-knowing because when he was asked about the establishment of the kingdom, basically about the rapture, he's saying that was for the Father who is in heaven. See, there was a period of time when he didn't know everything that he knows. He's omniscient. Now he, he knows all. As far as all-powerful, he humbled himself. He came as the land comes to the shears. He allowed himself to be crucified for, for our good. Jesus set the example. Hebrews 12.2 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who wrote our faith. He's the one who brought it to fulfillment. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So that tells me that the cross wasn't the joy. I mean, as far as taking his sin upon him, what was the joy? You're the joy. We're the joy of Christ. He, he looked past that. Again, it troubled his heart. Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if that was you just hours, well, moments away, really, because they were coming to arrest him? 
understanding the magnitude of what's going to happen. Again, God, for the first time, taking sin upon him. The scriptures tell us he knew that this was the Father's plan. And so as he was sweating blood in that Garden of Gethsemane, he was always looking past that as well for the joy that was set before him that the gates of heaven were going to be opened up. Now, up to that time, we're not going to get into this whole study, but there's Hades, there's two sides to Hades. Before Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, man could not enter in to heaven. He couldn't enter into the presence of God. Because of his sinful nature, the price needed to be paid. And so until Christ, until Christ went to the cross, there was, if you will, it's called Abraham's bosom or paradise, there was this place that the saints who have died beforehand in faith in Jesus Christ would go to waiting until that day happened. There was also a bad side of Hades. That's where those go who are waiting for the great white throne judgment that we see in Revelation chapter 20. But nonetheless, Christ went and he understood that those saints were going to be set free in ways that they can't even imagine. Those people were in paradise and it still paled in comparison to the time that they were going to be in heaven before a holy God. But also, he looked at the people, the believers of that day, but also he looked through the annuals of time and he saw you as well. And it's that which motivated him to go to the cross. It's an amazing thing when you really think about it. Thirdly, to truly see Jesus, you must see him first as liberator, secondly as your leader, and then lastly as your Lord. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him, my father, will, will, will honor. Um, you want to see Jesus? You've got to see him as Savior. The only way to see him as Savior is to see him upon the cross. You've got to see him as a leader. He willfully went to the cross. He self-sacrificed. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech ye therefore, brethren. Paul understood the magnitude of the importance of, uh, of, of truly humbling yourself. He said to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, to the Jewish mind, you know, sacrifice is something that's going to die. But now we have the perfect sacrifice that died so that we would not have to die, but we could be that living sacrifice. It says holy and acceptable to God. What does he say? It's the least you can do. It's your reasonable service. This is Christianity 101. Liberator, leader, but also, again, as Lord. The perspective from which we should confirm his lordship in our lives is through obedience to what God has called us to do, who God has called us to be. To live a holy life, but a little bit more than that. To consider, what is your spiritual gifting? How is it that God has gifted you? Are you exercising that spiritual gift? The majority of the church doesn't have a clue how they're gifted, and a lot of people who do aren't exercising that spiritual gift. If you truly want to see Jesus, yeah, you've got to see him as Savior. You've got to see him as a leader, but you also got to see him as Lord. As I pointed out many times, remember what Christ said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? In actuality, he's saying, makes no sense. And then if you would follow through in that area of Scripture, you would see that those people, they were condemned. And so, to follow Jesus is to live your life as he lived his, to conduct your service to him in a spirit of love, and to do the things that he says. Talk is cheap, but actions, it speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. Anybody can say, but those who do, 
those who do confirm the things that they say. Because, well, how do we see Jesus today? 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I bear the image of Jesus Christ, the man of dust. And so I reflect Christ and the examples that he set. And that, again, I have a spirit of love and I sacrifice myself, this life, for the benefit of others so that others may live. And then I will also one day have that spiritual body as confirmation for the things that I did here on earth. God will bless me as such. Verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now again, there's a question asked in the Scripture here, and as I've said so many times, when a question is asked in the Scripture, the answer is always to the negative. So my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So the implied answer is no, because he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, you've got to keep in mind, it's four days once again before the cross, and so the Lord's mind, the Lord's mind is squarely upon his cross. It's here that we have a glimpse into the soul of the Lord prior to the cross. Notice how he describes his soul once again. It's troubled. It's troubled. It's coming down the line, that time when he's going to take sin upon him. And again, that has to be that which concerns him and that which consumes him. It's interesting to see that he was troubled here when he would instruct his disciples elsewhere, though, not to be troubled. Seems to be a bit of a contradiction. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And then a little bit later on from the point here in John 12, John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. But then again, we see John's understanding this because John's seeing him. The Apostle John, who's writing this gospel, he's perceiving that the Lord is troubled, although the Lord will and has told them not to be troubled. Why would the Lord instruct his disciples to not be troubled in the face of a trial when he was unable to do so himself? Well, his troubled, as I said earlier, is not springing up from something physical. It's not springing up from a trial. It's springing up from something spiritual. And so, because the Lord was troubled, I don't need to be troubled. Because the Lord was troubled, you don't need to be troubled. You're going to be going through, again, Matthew 14. It was the time when they were out on the sea and the waves came up. You're going to be in that boat. And you're going to see things that are all-consuming. And the Lord's saying, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Why? Because we understand that Jesus... Even during that time, as they were on that boat, Jesus was on the mountain, and he was there, and he was interceding for them. He was praying for them. And it seems like when they were brought to their very end, then he came to them in a miraculous, a supernatural way. And even in the midst of their trouble, again, there's Peter, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out. And Peter got out of the boat. And the thing I see about Peter and and, and, and I can have a lot of respect. Usually people make fun of Peter. I have a lot of respect for Peter because I don't know. I would have probably been like the other 11. I ain't getting out of this boat. 
But Peter got, and Peter, because he got out of the boat, he walked on the water. I don't know how many steps he took. I don't know how, maybe it was a microsecond. But for a little bit there, he was walking on the water. He had enough faith, at least for that. The rest didn't. And so because of that, you see that example, why would we be troubled in our time of trouble? Now, the only thing that would really, honestly, completely and totally trouble somebody, a born-again believer, would be if Jesus Christ was not your Lord. It it would be at the point of death. Now, think of Jesus is going to have this physical death, but he's also going to experience this spiritual death because sin has come upon him and sin, sin brings death. But we don't have that. We avoid that through Jesus Christ. He paid the price. So what's troubling you? What's troubling you? It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Don't be troubled by that. Now we continue to minister and we continue to push forward, but don't worry about that. Uh, Finances, the economy, really, what is it that's troubling us? The job and the situation at the job? Don't be troubled by all of that. Be concerned about it. Be responsible in it. But don't be troubled, because the only thing that should really trouble you, it's been taken care of by God. God has taken care of it, and he's delivered you from it. Everything else is for our learning and for our maturing. Remember, Jesus had just told us not to value your life. He'll take care of your life. And so what the Lord is troubled about here, again, is that spiritual significant thing that is going to happen four days from that period of time. Now, when Jesus is upon the cross, who is it who is punishing him? It's not the Romans. You know, when uh, Mel Gibson came out with the the movie uh, The The Passion of Christ, you know, there was big debate. Was this because of the Jews? Was it because of the Romans? And they were concerned how those people were going to be perceived. Well, if you have a problem with him being punished upon the cross, see the Father. Because it was the Father who was implementing, implementing punishment upon the Son. Why? Because God is just and sin must be punished. It's why Jesus died. It was in the death that the punishment came. Because if you were upon the cross and you were taking your sins, just your sins, not the sins of the world, upon you, you would be figuratively upon the cross dead forever. Because you could never fully pay the price. But Christ paid the price so that we may live. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But we now have peace through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what that tells me is there is now no nothing really that I should need to fear. Matthew chapter... Why don't you go ahead and turn over there. Matthew chapter 27... Matthew chapter 27 probably is the best biblical description of hell. What is hell? Hell is eternal separation from God. And that's exactly what, not eternal, but Jesus was experiencing at that time. So you get a picture of what Jesus experienced, and we have some light that is shining upon what is going on in there so that we would know and understand what we've been delivered from. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, Jesus is upon the cross. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth, from 12 noon until three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. Now, what's one of the best description of hell? Well, hell is a godless existence. We're told there's going to be no sun, moon, or stars in heaven. How's it going to be illuminated? It's going to be illuminated by the glory of God. Now, a dark place, remember, hell is described as outer darkness, Well, this is a little bit of a picture of 
hell here of a godless existence. And really what's happening here as darkness is coming over the earth for that three-hour period of time, there's Jesus Christ. He's taken sin upon himself. Now just kind of think of that. Here's Christ with sin upon himself. It's as if for that three-hour period of time, mankind has no hope. Now at the end, we know he's going to emerge victorious in that, but that's the picture here. As sin has come upon mankind, and you can kind of take that back to Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation, if he gave into the temptation of mankind, then mankind has no hope. The devil knew what he was doing in his temptation of Christ. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, if Jesus says, yes, I'll take the kingdoms of the world, we're condemned for all of eternity. So you just have this picture of, of, of hell here, and so the darkness, when in the darkness you need to see of man's godless existence. Verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, going back to Adam and Eve, what has been the result of sin? Jesus, for the first time, is having sin upon him. And again, this is a huge miracle. It pales in comparison to the miracle of, of what he's doing and dealing with sin. But nonetheless, he's experiencing the separation that sin brings from God. Now, he's still God, although he set aside some of its godly attributes. But he's experiencing that experience for, again, the first time in all eternity past. And some, verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, some of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And here again is, is the ultimate thing of, of what hell represents. He yielded up his spirit or he died. It's death and it's eternal death. And so you get this, you know, what's the best description of hell in the Bible? Well, for me, it's right there. It's right there. It's, it's telling the story. It's telling the story of what Christ did. So we get a good picture of what it was, going back to John chapter 12, what it was that was troubling his heart. He was taking all of these things upon himself. This time, this place where Jesus paid in a moment what would have taken us eternity to pay for. We would have been in eternal darkness. We would have had eternal separation from God and it would have resulted in eternal death. And that's a death that you live, even though you've died, you still experience it. If you can kind of understand what I just said, because I don't know if I do, but you can't. You can't unless you experience it, but we've been delivered from it. And so his heart, again, was troubled so that ours would not have to be. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name, then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When did he first glorify his name? Well, we're not told specifically exactly, but I believe the first time that he glorified it was when a voice from heaven came that sounded, as these people will see, describes this voice that they hear. It was at the giving of the law. The law was good. The law was right, and the law was perfect. Mankind could not be right before God just based upon the law, but God glorified himself through the giving of the word back in Exodus chapter 19. When is he glorifying it again? Is that the giving of grace. And again, when you see the crucifixion, you see darkness, but you also see thundering and you see rock splitting, and that's to show us the magnitude of the power of God 
that he has chosen to display for the purpose of grace and the forgiveness of sins, or maybe the dealing of sins would be a better term. But it's the same thing that we see back in Exodus chapter 19. You see the thunderings, you see the, or you hear the loud trumpet, and you see the splitting of rocks. Again, a picture of the magnitude of the power of God at the giving of, wor- of the word. And so I also see the power of God for the purpose of judgment, but I also see the power of God for the purpose of salvation. We need to understand that. We need to come to the realization of that. And then through verses 29 through 30, we see the primary purpose of the cross, at least the expression of the cross. Primary purpose is forgiveness of sins. Price paid, actually. Verse 29, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not be, uh, come because of me, but for your sake. What God, or God would do it so that man would understand, again, the magnitude of what God has desired to do and what God is doing so that we would have the focus upon the one that you want to see. Well, look at him. Look at him in the sight of God in the manner in which God is displaying him. Because in a few days, in four days, you're going to look upon him and see what you perceive man has done to him, but you've got to understand it from the perspective of God that truly, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 31, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples unto myself. And so, there's the glory of God. Glory of God, again, is seen in its judgment, as we see again in verse 31. Judgment is a sentence passed, and the power broken of all that is contrary to God, best seen in the great white throne judgment and the destruction of the heavens and the earth, in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. But then there is the glory of God seen in His grace. Again, verse 32, And if I am lifted up, From the earth I will draw all peoples unto myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. What keeps Jesus being the effective draw that he has been for the past 2,000 plus years? He was lifted up. To be lifted up means to be crucified. Every other God expects you to sacrifice for him. But this is a God who has been lifted up in the sight of all of mankind that we would see the magnitude of the love of God that he has displayed to all. Now this verse is used out of context so many times. If we lift him up, if we preach the gospel, if we worship him, he'll draw all men unto himself. Those aren't bad things, but it's not the context here. It speaks of his death, because without a cross there is no crown. But it's not just his death, it's the display of his death. The idea he is lifted up for the purpose of displaying who he is for all of mankind. I'm sorry, Hosea 11.4, I drew them with gentle cords and with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Now keep that in context of the Gospel of John. What did he say in chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. See, the voice of Christ, he draws us to him. 
He draws us to him, and it's his love. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the love of God that, that brings all of humanity to him. He's not driving us through the threat of judgment. He's not driving us contrary to our will. He's displaying his love, and he's drawn all mankind. Earlier in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Now, we get raised up. The idea our raising up is to new life. But the only way we're raised up to new life is because he was first lifted up upon the cross. And again, you want to see the love of God? You look to the cross. It's why we preach the cross, because it's the example, the magnitude of the love that God has for all of humanity. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation. There is not salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. Verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die, The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So again, they have an improper perspective of who Jesus is. His own apostles that were with him for three years had an improper perspective of everything that was going on. We know that these things would not be cleared up until there was the sending of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Why was he hidden from them? Because according to the Father's plan, there's still four more days. See, not only was Christ to come to be crucified, but he had to be done so according to the scriptures. Remember John? He's presented his thesis as Jesus Christ is God. Now he's going through and he's proving his point. He's proving his point through the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, but also through the fulfillment of the scriptures. Later on, John will write these things. There's many more things, but these things I've written that you may believe that he is the son of God. It's essential that we know that. Why? Because looking back at the cross, when he is lifted up, when we see him, we are to see God. God who has sacrificed, because of the great love which he has for mankind, has sacrificed, in essence, himself, so that you wouldn't have to be sacrificed, but whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And and Father, just how these things are spelled out in detail. And Lord, as we get to detail, it's for the purpose of our learning, our understanding, but also, Father, for the purpose of our motivation. And so, Father, I pray that you would motivate us, that, Lord, truly we would see you lifted up, that we would display you as the one who's been crucified for the sins of the world. That, Father, those things that people are looking for in a Clinton or a Trump or an Obama or anybody else, they're just never going to find. Again, it's going to get a lot worse. But, Lord, those who put their trust in you will not be put to shame. And so, Father, as we have done that, I pray, Father, that you in turn now will use us for your glory. So fill us with your spirit for that purpose, that we would have a proper perspective of who you are. And, Father, we would preach that reality To all who come into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We all stand, please.
couple of things. We have some events coming up this Saturday. We're having a couples conference. You can still come if you want, but we need to know uh, if you waited for the last minute. This is the last minute, and so we need to know in order to have, uh, well, just in order to be prepared. Also, if you know somebody who is struggling with somebody that they may have lost a loved one, we're having a, uh, um, our Seasons of Sorrow that we have every other Monday during the year. We're having specific session this Saturday at 2 o'clock here at the church that is designed for the holiday season and how people struggle during that time. So it's geared towards that. So if you know anybody, maybe you're not dealing with that, but if you invite somebody, they'd come and they'd see the answer to their, their concerns, their troubled heart would be the Lord. Uh, the marriage conference is going to be starting here at the church at 8 o'clock Saturday morning. Again, you can still come if you desire. You just need to let us know. God bless you guys.